G'day, and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is underwater photographer and marine life advocate, P.T. Hirschfield. And we're going to be talking about the giant spider crab. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Matt. Ahoy. Just before we start today's podcast, I just want to set the scene for the Australian giant spider crab which we talk about. These crabs are found all throughout the Great Southern Reef. However, the population that we talk about and that faces some issues discussed in the show are located in Port Phillip Bay, Melbourne, Australia. Now, back to the podcast. So, what is a spider crab? If anyone doesn't know, run us through what they kind of look like and what they are. Yeah, so a spider crab is a bit like an underwater transformer. Do you remember those transformer toys we had back in the 80s? Or I'm just showing my age too much then. (laughs) So (laughs) basically a spider crab is a small brown crab, which on its own probably would just crawl past you underwater and not really command much of your attention. But every year these spider crabs gather in the shallows in huge numbers they start to go around on the march and to build up their numbers for safety and numbers and then there's this spectacular event now anyone who's ever watched blue planet 2 probably knows exactly what i'm talking about but these crabs gather together for their annual molting aggregations and that's where they draw huge crowds of people locally interstate Back in the good old days, international people would come and have a look at them. Underwater photographers, film crews, snorkelers, free divers, people just watching from the pier and would watch this incredible spectacle of so many crabs gathering. And they get to a point, as you and I well know, because we've swum up to these molting pyramids together and they start to gather so that they can begin their molting process, which is basically the one of the best transformations in the whole underwater world. And it can take anything from maybe 12 minutes to an hour, depending on how easy or how difficult the malt is for that particular crab, where they extract themselves. I I call it a, a plop and pop, where they kind of, they're walking around with their, their, you know, new shell just about ready to pop out. And then they plop into position where you, you kind of wonder you know, is this crab okay? It's it's kind of almost like a comatose sort of state. And then eventually it starts pulling out its new limbs and freeing itself from that old malted shell. So it goes from looking like a small brown crab. Now, the name is a little bit of a misnomer. They call them the Australian giant spider crabs. And I think a lot of people get in their mind that Japanese spider crab that's as big as a human. Well, actually, it's probably about the size of a human hand before it molts and then only slightly bigger. I I actually prefer the other name. They can also be called the Australian great spider crab. And yeah, they're great. I'll go with that one because I think it's probably a better fit for the size and a better description for how great they really are. Cool. Yeah. And so like, as you said, they're about the size of your fist. And I think they go limb to limb though. They get up to about 70 70 centimeters for the really big ones. And you often see really big ones amongst the crowd of little ones. And to kind of set the scene, if you haven't seen that classic marching part you mentioned in Blue Planet 2, they actually walk forward 
but very slowly. So most crabs, and this is like a fact I was going to mention later, but why not now? So most crabs move side to side, but these spider crabs, they can do that, but they also can walk forward, but it looks like it's not natural. And so they have this slow kind of lumber. And so when you see this army kind of moving, there's just this field of slowly lumbering crabs. It's, yeah, it's like a scene out of Lord of the Rings or something. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people sort of see that footage and get creeped out by it because they do look fairly spidery and en masse they can seem very imposing on film. But to actually experience them in person, uh, it's kind of a bit like your classic blue ring octopus that's got this massive sort of reputation and everyone's a little bit scared of it until you meet it and realise that it's a, a timid little sweetheart. And, you know, these spider crabs are a bit like that as well. They're not as creepy as they look. They're actually just totally fascinating. They walk forwards, backwards, sideways. They'll climb up you and give you a cuddle sometimes thinking you're a pylon. <laughs> you know, they're, they're really quite sweet animals as long as you're not another spider crab and, you know, your mate next door to you wants to snack on your leg. But, you know, they're, they're, they're predatory of each other but there's just so much to love about them. They're really fascinating, enigmatic creatures. That just brings up in my memory a scene I saw one day of these spider crabs in that one's trying to molt and so, you know, kind of getting out of its shell backwards. And as you said, there were two spider crabs nearby that thought it looked really tasty. So the poor thing is trying to molt and the other two are like, oh, free meal, score. Exactly right. Yeah, and, you know, maybe the fact that they're in such large numbers means that they're both there as a primary winter food source for beautiful big smooth rays that go through, you know, right before their breeding season. But I think they also probably provide their own cannibalistic food source. So, yeah, the more we watch them and observe, the more we learn about them. And, yeah, they can be fascinating and horrifying in equal numbers, depending on your perspective on any given day. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that there's rays and stuff coming to feed them and there's sharks and so tell us a bit about the predators that you've seen come in and kind of, you know, feed on these animals. Yeah, so obviously the iconic big smooth rays are the first thing that come to mind. And, you know, recently in the most recent molting aggregations, uh, there was a time when the pier was closed off from humans and someone sent a drone up and it looked like there were probably about 20 smooth rays circling that pier at that time when the crabs were in. Obviously, sometimes as divers, we might only see, you know, a handful or six or seven at, at once if we're lucky, but not really have that big picture. So that's, that's a huge part of the, that ecological food chain at that point, I guess. But my very first encounter with a predator of the spider crabs was on a night dive, probably in around... I don't know, um, 2010, and it was an, an angel shark and it was actually getting quite feisty with me because it was trying to eat the spider crabs and it saw me as competition and it didn't like me focusing on the same crabs, so it started to have a go at my camera. I've also seen and heard of octopuses going after them, cuttlefish, you know, there's, there's a whole host of animals that are interested. Salmon, you often get these big schools of fish that circle them and that pick at them. Uh, when, when you think about this, the spider crabs, very often they are a food source in terms of the new freshly emerging soft shell crab. But there are fish that will also pick away at those malted shells. So I think they're a really important part of that winter food chain for a whole lot of different marine life. 
Yeah. And one that you didn't mention as well is seabirds. I've seen seabirds kind of feasting on them. And that's yeah. always a, a really cool sight because the crab's trying to get away by like get, you know, sticking to the seafloor and the birds are ducking down and pecking at it. And it's it's quite a horrific scene, really, but it's a fascinating one. And and you know, I think I think that's it's like anything that you would see on a, a nature documentary. When you, when you see that predation, it's, you know, difficult to watch, but also there's a real sense of celebration that this is, this is how nature works. And in order for these animals to survive, they need an abundant food source and that that feeds all the way up that food chain. But, yeah, I've heard, heard of people who don't dive and don't get in the water at all just watching pelicans really having a great feast on those spider crabs. So, it's actually really accessible to people in a way that is probably unique in all the world to be able to watch what's going on from the, the complexities of the interactions of all the different marine life that come in at this point. And also at the last spider crab molting aggregations was the first time I'd come sort of nose to nose with uh, a decent sized shark under one of those piers so it's always fascinating to see what's coming in and how they're all interacting and you know what part each one plays in relation to each other yeah and so that kind of leads us on to the next part where we're going to talk a bit about a campaign that you're involved with called save our spider crabs and now that we've mentioned how important they are to the local ecology and how many animals rely on them and how many people are interested in them Tell us a little bit, a bit about first why there's a need for a campaign and then what's kind of happening with it. Yeah, so I might backtrack a little bit to 2015. When the crabs used to come in on the march, you know, the, the word would get down the grapevine across the state and people would get in their car and drive for five, six hours thinking that the crabs had come in. And by the time they get there, of course, they're long gone and so in 2015, I set up a group called Spider Crabs Melbourne, which was basically just a spider crab fan club and to try and, you know, create a central hub for people who wanted to share their observations, photos and videos. And, you know, within the dive community, which I'm a part of, you know, the spider crabs used to come in. 10 years ago, kind of around Easter. And it was kind of, you know, every year you look forward to Christmas, you look forward to Easter. It was that kind of annual celebration. And, you know, mostly it was just people who were interested in observing them with reverence and celebrating the natural phenomenon. And many years later, you know, fast forward to 2019, and I wasn't around, I was in another country and a little bit unwell at that point. So I missed the, the advent of the first time that the spider crabs started to be targeted, but you were there, Matt. And you saw, you know, people for the first time seeing that all of these crabs were gathering for safety in numbers where they were so accessible using those piers as structure to try and get away from their natural predators that, you know, there was people who started to think, hey, well, let's see if we can target and eat these spider crabs and started to really catch them en masse to the point where very few of the crabs in 2019, and then I saw it for myself in 2020, from those aggregations that met you know, in the most accessible places, had any opportunity to molt at all. You know, these small, brown, unmolted, hand-sized crabs were being taken out of the water in the thousands and sometimes the tens of thousands. And that reverence for that safeguarding of an animal in an 
a critical time in, in its life cycle and breeding cycle just was not being observed. There was this more of this opportunistic targeting to see, you know, how many crabs could be caught to the point where there were hardly any left. So obviously when there's a long-standing cultural tradition of coming and watching this natural phenomenon and really revering and respecting it, that was really alarming for a lot of people. And, you know, in Victoria, there's already precedents in place where for the southern rock lobster, when they go through important times in their, their life cycle and breeding cycle, there's a no-take season. And it's only so it's been the last two years where they've gone from being a global natural phenomenon, world-renowned and respected, to let's see how many we can catch when they're most vulnerable. And so the people who have a real understanding of these crabs coming in as a very long-standing cultural tradition of, you know, natural celebration have said we need to stand up and say that they can't just suddenly be recategorised as fishing stock when that's not best practice for fishing anyway to target animals. It's certainly against Indigenous cultural law to attack animals when they're in those important parts of their breeding cycles. And so we've we've had to engage a lot of the fishing and broader stakeholders and political stakeholders and community and to say we don't think this is a way to treat this amazing natural phenomenon. David Attenborough agrees. He's sent us two handwritten letters supporting this campaign. And we've just been working really hard to say, you know, this is something that should be celebrated and safeguarded, that there's a long-standing community value that exceeds the value of the animals for fishing because a lot of the survey results that have come out have said then have confirmed what people have known for a long time. They're not good eating. You know, they don't taste great. There's not much meat on them. They're not very satisfying from that point of view. And so if we have a no-take season, then we can celebrate and safeguard them. And then beyond that no-take season, whatever happens, happens. Nature happens, fishing happens. That's not an issue. But when they're congregated for safety in numbers, the worst thing we can do is to take all of that pre-breeding stock out of the water without knowing because there's no scientific basis, what the impact of that is going to be on the broader population of animals. And also there's been a lot of impact on the local marine environment directly impacted with, you know, chicken carcasses being dumped on mass and plastic cable ties and crab nets being scraped up pylons to remove all of the encrusting sponges and entrapping fiddlerays and seahorses and sea stars and you know, it's just been a really multifaceted set of concerns. So as a campaign, we're just saying these are the problems. What can we do to work together with stakeholders in the broader local and global community to address these and really advocating a no-take season for the spider crabs malting aggregations? Yeah, and it's just so important. And I think one of the things that I, I've noticed is that a lot of people that are down there, be them fishermen or snorkelers, they love the crabs just as much as anyone else, especially a lot of the local fishermen. And I guess like, I'll just touch on a bit. My kind of thought is that the current bag limit is 30. And, Mm. you know, you may think, you know, 30 crabs, that's a lot or that's not a lot. But how I like to think of it is if I went down, if I was a fisherman and I wanted to catch 30 crabs any time a year, that is a lot of work. And I I would have to spend at least 24 hours, I think, catching crabs. However, when you get a bag limit of 30 crabs and they're so abundant that people use pool scoops off the pool, off the pier 
to collect them, that's not fishing. And I think that's like a big thing that I, because I'm not a fisherman, but I I respect people want to use the ocean for fishing and a food source. And I think that's way better than commercial fishing, but this isn't recreational fishing. This is just harvesting on mass of a species that may not be around if this continues. Yeah, and and at a time where it just doesn't make sense to target this or any other species in terms of that being such a critical time in their life cycle. So, yeah, it's it's about about working with the broadest range of stakeholders to maybe define something that has never been seen as a a target for fishing before in, in decades where it's always been revered, you know, in its own right. And just having a lot of dialogue around the emerging practices and, you know, taking fish. It's this, this campaign, SOS Save Our Spider Crabs, is in no way an anti-fishing campaign. It's about best practice in policy and fishing and, you know, custodianship of an extraordinary natural phenomenon that, that has an important role to play in the bigger picture of Port Phillip Bay. And we don't know enough about it. So if anyone comes in and says, hey, you know, it's, they're, they're not at, at risk, we can take tens of thousands out of the water at this time and it will have no impact on the broader population. Well, there's no science to support that. So there's a lot more discussion, a lot more science, a lot more measures that could be put in place until we have a few more answers about what the real impact is of that, as well as just the, the impact on the local community, on the economy. You know, it's, it's really multifaceted. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point that it's not an anti-fishing campaign, but it's like most of the campaigns, which is we want the fishermen to be able to catch crabs in the future. We want the divers to be able to see crabs in the future. We want the ecosystem to continue to work in favour for everyone. Yeah. And I think Victoria usually does that, um, the state we're in, really well. Tell us about a bit about the campaign and a bit about what's happening and how it's all going. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I, I set up Spider Crabs Melbourne in 2015. I was not around at all in 2019 when this first started in relation to observing what was happening on the piers and needing to address that as a matter of urgency in 2019, there was another group that was formed called Spider Crab Alliance. Uh, There was also another organisation, Victorian National Parks Association, that was concerned. And members from all of these groups in 2020 started to come together And to say, you know, after a whole lot of discussions had taken place with key stakeholders in 2019, but had seemed to have reached something of a a stalemate in terms of progress, then we started the discussions again in 2020 when we observed the harvesting practices intensifying against the crabs. And so those groups came together under the umbrella of SOS, Save Our Spider Crabs, which you can find on Instagram, but you can still also join the Spider Crabs Melbourne Facebook page or the public uh, Spider Crab Alliance page. And we just all looked at how we can work together to engage stakeholders. So we've been talking to VFA, VR Fish, local politicians and MPs, Parks Victoria, DELP, every stakeholder that we can find who has a role to play and involving the local community and really trying to advocate for this no-take position. Last year, they, the Spider Crab Alliance started a petition which across the two seasons has got over 35,000 signatures 
globally and at least 10% of that are local to the Mornington Peninsula. I'm not sure when listeners are going to be listening to this exact episode, but if they're listening before the 27th of October 2020, that's the cutoff date for submissions from the general public, individuals, organisations, etc., to write into the VFA and to say, you know, thank you for offering to reduce the bag limit from 30 to 15. But the survey results suggest that most people aren't catching more than 15. So that would lead to a break-even position at best. And it would also promote and further endorse the targeting of these animals at the most critical stage of their life cycle. So it's, it's not really going to address any of the key concerns. So what we're really encouraging people to do, if they can write in, and there are links that can be easily followed to help with submissions uh, before the 27th of October 2020 to just say, please, we oppose a bag limit reduction because it won't address the issues and we request a no-take season similar to the one in place for uh, southern rock lobsters to be brought in for the spider crabs and obviously until we get more scientific research, which will obviously take years to conduct that is meaningful to these debates, then we need to be safeguarding them at this point. Yeah, and I'll post those links on the podcast website and on the podcast page so you can kind of follow them through. And so that speaking of research, I believe uh, you were involved recently with a bit of spider crab tagging because we are getting some research, which is really cool. Yeah, I wasn't involved, but I was invited to go and observe. And COVID world being what it is, I couldn't be on the boat to see the tagging take place, but I could be underwater to see the the crabs being released. So what VFA did was they caught and tagged with very sort of large um, satellite tags, 15 spider crabs to try to track what their start point was and their end point was with one tag, I believe, being automatically released or programmed to be released each week for 15 weeks. So that that will at least tell them how how far a, a crab with a satellite tag attached can walk during that time and they they may be able to extrapolate some interesting information from that. Down the track, it would be great to see research more into, you know, when do these crabs breed in terms of this cycle? When do they mate? You know, what what is the biomass if we're talking, you know, presenting cases for against sustainability? And Save Our Spider Crabs has never said that we are campaigning on the basis of sustainability, although, of course, it's a factor. But, you know, that's not the primary concern. And yet if VFA or other organisations are saying, well, there'll be no impact because there's plenty of crabs in the bay, it's like, okay, let's figure out how many there are because then how do you know when you've crossed the line between it being no impact of sustainability to being a significant impact, you know, where is that line if you don't have a baseline of biomass to judge that against? So, yeah, it's great to see for the first time that I'm aware of some real research starting on the crabs And it's definitely a good first step in the right direction. Yeah, and I guess that really highlights that we don't know anything about them. I guess one of the important things with this satellite tagging thing is that they could be coming from kilometres and kilometres outside of the bay. You know, if they are all coming from outside the bay and they all come to the one spot to molt and we then catch them all, that wipes out a huge of the state population. And, you know, a lot of people have dived in the bay and you don't see them en masse. I've only seen a handful 
within the actual bay. So where they all go, how far they travel, when they breed, as you mentioned, all those things are unknown. So it kind of gives the bag limit a really, like it, it doesn't make any sense because we don't know anything. There's certainly people out there that have boats and, you know, try and track them beyond their malting aggregations in, in the middle of winter. And they they certainly have some anecdotal and observational records, but there's nothing that's ever been really scientifically documented in a way that is meaningful to inform these sorts of debates and issues. So that that would seem to be the, the logical next step now that there are important decisions to be made about these this species that's so iconic and so high up now on the radar of being, you know, needing more proactive and more informed management. And so to head up to a positive note, let's have a chat about what's the best thing you've seen the spider crabs do or your favourite spider crab experience and what's it like being amongst thousands of spider crabs? Yeah, it's always surreal because you don't know when they're going to come in and, you know, usually it is a grapevine thing and then your heart fills with hope and then you bolt down to the pier and whether they are actually there or they've moved on because they're on the march. Actually tracking them has been fun you know when you when you just see a few and you think hang on I think I think this is a a thread that leads to a mother load somewhere and you start following it through the silt and you can barely see where you're going and then you know I've been in water that is so silty that you cannot see the thousands of crabs within hand's reach because they just mess it up so badly Um, I've had some really cute experiences with individual crabs that if, you know, I've been lying on my belly and you're trying to film a crab and then suddenly it comes and climbs up me like I'm a pylon and, and starts, you know, dancing along my arm and then does a bungee jump off. And I, I love the fact that there are so many of them, but they all are individual animals as well. So I love it when an individual animal stands out. You know, the last season I was just watching one spider crab on a pylon picking off sponges and watching it meticulously you know trying to attach it to its shell and just such concentration and you know some of them worked and some of them didn't and just I I love spending time watching individual crabs amongst the masses and remembering that they've got their own unique life that they're living honestly over 10 years of observing them the stories are countless and you know, I, I just think anytime you see so many animals in one space, you've just sensed this awe at what is nature doing in this exact moment. You know, why are all of these bits of this marine puzzle congregated in exactly this spot for this, you know, specific point in time? And I, I just, I love that it's so endlessly fascinating to watch them. Speaking of bungee jumping, I think. One of my favorite things is definitely how you watch a spider spider crabs climb up these pylons and then occasionally they'll fall off. They kind of lose their balance. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. And they fall off and it suddenly it's raining crab. And I remember this one time there was a huge smooth ray feasting and he was going crazy, just eating as many crabs as he or she could. And there were still spider crabs kind of dropping from the sky. And one fell right on top of its head. And you could see both of the animals were just looking at each other. And, of course, a smooth ray's mouth is underneath and its eyes are on top. So it's kind of looking at this crab like, I would eat you if I could. And the crab's like, oh, my God, where have I landed? And it, it was just the most amazing yeah. thing. I, um, I think people just 
it's it's something you can't see every day and it takes a bit of dedication but I, I remember the first time I ever filmed a crab molting and I, I just had these really it's so strange but I just felt so connected to it like I was watching its birth I was present for its birth and I was cheering it on and you know I was in maybe nine degree water trying not to become hypothermic for 20 minutes filming it and these huge ray is going around and around it and there's these crabs jumping off pylons and if, if you ever want to see this footage it's called molt hard die harder i think it's had over four million views on youtube it's crazy <laughs> and i had my arms out holding my camera steady and next thing i know i feel something pushing my arm my camera arm and i look over and i'm nose to nose with the biggest smooth ray i've ever seen and it wants my crab that is just about out of its shell. And I'm like, do I fight with this, Ray? And <laughs> just let me let me finish this, you know, malt video. And I knew that was uh, I was going to lose in that debate. So I'm I just repositioned and you know watched with equal measures of heartbroken uh, regret and awe at this Ray slurping my first ever crab malting out of its shell up like you know, spaghetti marinara, you know, it, there's so many stories like that. You know, the, another one that I filmed that was molting from a seawall and as it came down onto the sand, it got caught in a bit of a current and it did something like 25 back rolls, you know, and they, their limbs are, you know, so soft because they haven't used them, they haven't hardened and they just, it, it, it must have been getting so dizzy, the poor thing, and I just filmed it as it just, did this ninja roll over and over and over again and you're just like wow you know it's you wouldn't want to be a spider crab at that exact moment of coming out of one of those shells it would be a pretty scary experience but uh yeah my heart goes out to these little guys I just wish them all the best and and the stingrays as well I love them so I don't I don't bear them any ill will when they find a nice big freshly malted crab to slurp up it's all brilliant to watch yeah, and it's it's all part of the system, and I think that's why it is so beautiful to watch the whole the whole shebang. Greatest show on earth. <laughs> well, that kind of brings us to the end of our spider crab or great spot great Australian great spider crab episode. Thank you very much for being on. If anyone wants to see any of your footage or any of your photos and learn more about Save Our Spider Crabs, where should they go and what should they do? Oh, most of my footage and images are on Pink Tank Scuba, Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. Also, anyone who's super keen can apply to join to the Spider Crabs Melbourne Facebook group or they can go to the public Spider Crab Alliance Facebook page or they can go to Save Our Spider Crabs on Instagram and have a look not only at the crabs but a lot of the supporters that are getting on board as well showing their support with their sos merchandise and signs and everyone has an important role to play in better outcomes for these amazing animals and hopefully hopefully we get there i'm sure we will eventually but um thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much matt Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram, Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography, and my webpage, mtunderwatermedia.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash seacreaturespodcast, where you can help support the show and its running costs. Production assistance by Georgia McGrath. 
and music by the amazing Dan Musil and his stupendous slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear all about Nudie Branks with Jack Breeden. This is the Secretures Podcast. Over and out. Mm-hmm.